Well, we're going to be in the Gospel of John today. Gospel of John, chapter 17. John, chapter 17. John, chapter 17. Um, if you don't know the what the book of John is all about, it's just a biography, a, a, a short uh, retelling of the life of Jesus Christ. And there are four biographies in, in the... In the New Testament, that Jesus uh, providentially gives us of Himself, there's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and each one of those is inspired and inerrant. And um, God has providentially, in His kindness, chosen to give us four different perspectives on the life of of His Son. And so um, we're we're grateful for the gift of being able to study the Gospel of John. We've been in the Gospel of John now for about a year, and uh, we we started the Gospel of John. A, uh, about uh, this time last year, a couple Sundays before, and uh, we, we're kind of starting to draw near to the end. And so last week we saw the last teaching that Jesus gives in the Gospel of John uh, before his death. Um, in John 16, we, we've seen that that's a huge chunk of teaching in the Gospel of John. It's called the Last Supper Discourse. And then tonight, or not tonight, today, we're um, talking about the, the last prayer that Jesus makes in the Gospel of John before his death and his resurrection, uh, what's sometimes called the high priestly prayer. It's a high priestly prayer because the priests of the Old Testament would pray over the sacrifice before the sacrifice would be killed for the, the sac- uh, for the sins of the people. And in a similar way, so Christ himself prays over himself and his people uh, before he gives up his life as a sacrifice. And so we, we are going to walk through this prayer in three parts, and today um, we're going to cover verses 1 through 5. I emphasize that because this is the first part of a three-part sermon, okay? So I'm only going to preach the first part today, um, but the, the, the whole prayer really hangs together. There's three, three big sections to this prayer, but it's all united. And so today we're going to talk about John chapter 17, verses 1 through 5. This is what... Uh, Jesus prays. He says, it says this, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life that they know you. The only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Father, I have one more time we ask that you would make your word known to us today. Father, we would see the majesty of this passage, and we would not leave this room the same way that we entered. Father, we pray for this. We know that you are capable of doing far more than all that we could ask or think. It's in the name of your Son that we pray. Amen. Thoughts and prayers. Thoughts and prayers. Whenever a tragedy strikes, um, whenever there's an earthquake or a balloon pops, you'll see somebody on Twitter or, sorry, X or whatever, say, my thoughts and prayers are with you. Followed by the inevitable, can't you do more than just give somebody your thoughts and prayers? Um. Of course, the reality is is that there's something so natural, so normal, so human about praying for somebody in the midst of tragedy. It's almost like it's almost like breathing. You can't help yourself when you see somebody goes through something to say, "I'm praying for you." It's a it's a mystery that even a large portion of um, 
of people who do not have faith in Jesus Christ, who would call themselves agnostic or atheist. Uh, there's still a large percentage of those people who still pray on a daily basis. They don't know what they're praying for. They don't know who they're praying to, but they know that they pray, and they know that they pray when tragedy strikes. Thoughts and prayers. There's something normal, natural, and human about prayer. There's something that's built into us about offering up our words to heaven. It's a normal part of the human existence to pray. And so, yes, when tragedy strikes, you should offer more than thoughts and prayers, but you should not offer less than prayers. Because to pray is to be human. We see in our passage today that our Lord, Jesus Christ himself, um, on the night of his death, facing the impending tragedy that that his own death will lead to, chooses to take advantage of the time to offer up prayers, to pray for himself, to pray for his people. Maybe it's a strange idea for you to think about this, but Jesus prays for you in this in this uh, chapter. He says very clearly, I do not ask for these only, the, the 12 who are near him, but also for those who will believe in me through their words. So that's for all of us. Jesus, in this passage, is praying for you. And maybe you ask, well, what is Jesus praying for me? What, what, how does Jesus pray for me? How does Jesus pray for you? And that's what we'll be talking about over the next uh, couple times together as we walk through John 17. Uh, and today we'll be talking about the most important thing that Jesus could pray for you. The most important thing that Jesus could possibly pray for you. And it's, uh, as we will see, that the Father would glorify the Son. I'll explain that in a little bit. But to, to understand this prayer, I think, um, especially this part of this prayer, we have to talk about the, the prior relationship of the Father and Son. So the Son is not making these prayers out of nowhere. Rather, these prayers come out of His relationship with His Father that He's had since eternity past. And so we're going to talk about the prior relationship of the Father and the Son. And then we'll talk about the present and the future relationship of the Father and Son. So the prior and then the present and then we will have some applications. The prior relationship of the Father and Son and the present relationship, present and future relationship of the Father and Son. So what, what, what is the Father and Son's relationship before he makes this prayer? There's at least six things in this passage that are referenced. Six things about the prior relationship of the Father and Son that this passage references. Here's number one. The Father and the Son exist and dwell together in glory before time begins. So the Father and the Son exist and dwell together in glory before time begins. That the, There's never been a time where the Son did not know the glory of the Father. The glory of the Father has always been something that the Son himself has been familiar with, has been dwelling in, has had an intimate knowledge of and access to. We saw this in the opening words of the Gospel of John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. That The, the Son pre-exists all things, and He Himself is God. He, he exists in the beginning with God, dwelling with the Father in the glory of God for eternity past. And, and yet, it, we're, we're told here that He exists with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. And that word is so common in the Bible. It's so common in our songs. It's so common in Christianese. 
that you might see that word and not think anything over it of it and glaze over it without coming to terms what this idea of glory is. Now, the Hebrew the Hebrew word for glory, the Hebrew idea of glory in which the New Testament builds is the Hebrew word chabod, chabod. And it means weightiness or worthiness or heaviness or heftiness. So I am more glorious than I was half a lifetime ago. I'm, there's a weightiness and a heftiness and a worthiness about glory. That when you see the glory of God, it's like a, a tractor beam. It's like it has a gravitational pull that it pulls everything in the room to it. We saw in, uh, in Exodus earlier in the service that, the sun, that, the, that Moses gets a glimpse of this glory and he can't take his eyes away from it. And the sun was living with that glory for eternity past. He pre-existed all creation and he lived in the glory of God. Now, when, when we say glorify yourself, uh, that's, a, that's also another concept that is maybe a little bit hard to grasp because... There's never been a time where the Father and the Son have not had all the glory that one could ever even imagine could exist. The Father and the Son are self-sufficient. It's not like they need you to glorify them that they would be glorious. They just are glorious. It's part of who they are. They have it for before the world existed. They never, they never had this. There, there was never a time where they were like, oh, we're running low on glory. We better put that to the Sam's Club order. They've always had as much glory as they could possibly need. So when Jesus asks, glorify your son, for your son has glorified you, what is he saying? He's saying, reveal the glory that your son has. When he says, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed, what he's asking is that the Father would so exalt him, so reveal him, so hold him up that every eye on earth would look to him. That's what it means, that, that, that this glory that he's always had since eternity past would become manifest, that his people would see his glory. Father and the Son dwell in glory to eternity past. That's number one. Number two, the Father gives the Son authority over all flesh. So way back in the begin, before time begins, the Father gives to the Son authority over all flesh. It says that in verse 2. Since you have given Him authority over all flesh. Before any flesh existed over which the Son could have authority of, the Father gave Him authority over it. That you and I and, and every person who's ever lived were created to be subject to this glorious King. That from eternity past, God ordain that the king would have a kingdom and that the king would have authority and power and majesty. This is not the only place in the Bible where we see this. So for example, in the book of Colossians, it says this, he is the image, speaking of Christ, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he's before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. That in everything, he might pre- be preeminent. He, was, he did not come into existence to save everything. Everything came into existence so that he could save it and establish his authority over it. That's number two. Number three. The Father 
gives the Son a people. The Father gives the Son a people. So the Father and the Son exist before time begins in perfect eternal glory, and the Father gives to the Son authority, and the Father gives to the Son to fill up His kingdom, citizens and and subjects. The Father gives to the Son a people. This is what we might call the covenant of redemption. That Before time began, the Father and the Son entered into a compact, entered into a covenant. And part of that covenant was that the Father would give to the Son a people. We see this in this passage. Since you have given Him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given Him. We see it again in verse 6. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me. And they have kept your word. We, see, we saw this way back in John chapter 6, which we preached on like three years ago. John chapter 6, verse 35 through 40, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So before all eternity begins, the Father and the Son dwell together in perfect glory, and the Father gives to the Son authority, and the Father gives to the Son a people. He gives the Son a kingdom, and he gives to the Son people to fill that kingdom. And fourth, he gives the Son a job. He gives the Son a job. He gives him a work. It says in verse 4, I glorified your you on earth having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. The Father gives to the Son a people, and He gives to the Son a job. What is that job? That job is that He would give them eternal life, to give eternal life to all whom you have given Him. So the the Father, before the time begins, gives to the Son a mission, a purpose, a job, a work, that He would give His life on behalf of his sins, that he would be the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That he would die on the cross for the sins of the people. Before time began, the Father gave to the Son this mission, this purpose. Before you existed, before your sins existed, the Father gave the Son a job to save you from those sins and to purchase a people for himself from every tribe and tongue and nation. Number five. The Father and the Son created the world together. The Father and the Son created the world together. Jesus says, Now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So before, before all of these things, the Father and the Son created the world together. Again, we saw this in the opening verses of, John, of the book of John where he says, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything that was made. That the Father and the Son together make the, wor- make the world. They create the world. The Father speaks the world into existence, and that speaking is the Son. There's this mystery that happens when a creation arises, that it's, it comes because the Father has spoken, let there be. And that, those words, let there be, in some way are connected to the word of God who is with God and who was God. The Father and the Son create the world together. And then finally, we see the Father sends the Son. 
the Father sends the Son. And this is eternal life. Jesus says that they know you, the only true God. So that, that's a reference to the Shema in the Old Testament. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so the mission that God gives to the Son is that they would know that God, know the one true God, and that they would know Jesus Christ, whom, whom you have sent. So the Father gives the Son a mission, and then he sends him on the mission. He commissions him to go out to be born in human flesh, to die for the sins of the people. It says this in the opening pages of John again. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So the mission of the Son from the very beginning was to enter into human flesh, to tabernacle and pitch His tent among us, that we would see His glory, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have received grace upon grace, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. So the Father sends the Son to reveal his glory, to purchase a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. That is the past, the prior, the previous relationship between the Father and the Son. Here's the present and the future relationship of the Father and the Son that we see in in these verses. Jesus says, Father, the hour has come. The hour has come. Now, if you've been with us for what probably seems like eternity you know that we've covered the hour in John before. Because this language of the hour that is coming um, is building and has been building in the Gospel of John. So we see in chapter 2, verse 4, Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And we see again in chapter 4, uh, verse 21, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. And again, in chapter 4, verse 23, Jesus builds up. He says, the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. We see in chapter 5, verse 25, Jesus says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. We see in chapter 5, verse 28, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear His voice. We see in chapter 7, verse 30, Jesus says this. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. We see in chapter 8, verse 20, Jesus says this. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. And then when he enters into Jerusalem in chapter 12, it says this. It says, Jesus answered them then, the hour has come. It says, you've seen all throughout the Gospel of John that the, the tension has been building, the suspense has been building, the expectation, the foreshadow has been building, that the hour has not yet come. It's not yet come. It's not yet come. And then he enters into Jerusalem in the last week of his life, and Jesus says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. That the glory that he's had with the Father from before time began would now be revealed. That's his, that's his prayer. And we've seen that build again. It says, 
In chapter 13, verse 1, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them till the end. We've seen this again in his discourse when Jesus says, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. And it goes on and on that this, this is building up. And so Jesus, when he, he's praying to the Father, he says, this is what we've been waiting for. This is the hour that you've sent me for. This is the time of my mission. I'm going to do what you have called me to do. And then it says, somewhat bizarrely, maybe you think, Jesus says in verse 4, I glorified you on earth. Now, wait a minute. Hasn't he been like building this suspension and building this tension saying that thing in the future is getting closer and closer and closer and closer. And then he says in verse four, I glorified past tense you on earth. Maybe you're flipping back through the pages thinking, did I miss it somewhere? Like, like, did he die and come back and I just wasn't paying attention? I kind of, my eyes glazed over and I, you know, how can he speak of this thing that is coming in the past tense, the reason he says in verse 4, I glorified, past tense, I shown your glory, is because what he is about to do, the death that he's about to die for the sins of the people, is so certain, it's so determined, it's, it's, so, it's so going to happen. There's no question about it in his mind that he can speak with it as if it has already happened. Yes, he has not yet glorified the Father on earth, having finished the work that he's been given to do, but it is going to happen. He is going to see this plan through. He will give life to all those whom the Father has given him. He will speak his voice, and the dead will come out of the tombs. That He will not fail the people who will be in his kingdom and so he can say i glorified past tense not as if to say i've already done it but to say it is so certain it is so clear it's so obvious that it's going to happen that i'm going to speak of it as in the past tense so you all know there is no question about this the hour has come and i've done what you've asked me to do and I, the Father has sent the Son, says, to glorify Him. So the Father has sent the Son, so that when the Son dies on the cross, when He's lifted up from the earth, that the Son would reveal all the glory of the Father. And the Son asks the Father, then, that the Father would glorify the Son. He says, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. See, the cross of Christ is where the glory of God shines the brightest. The cross of Christ is, 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 is where the glory of God shines the brightest. We maybe read these stories in the Old Testament and we think, wasn't that amazing what the people of Israel got to see? We should read this and say, the glory shines even brighter here. Because it wasn't the glory that shone in the, in the wilderness and Moses wasn't allowed to see it. It's the glory that is displayed for all people to see. It's not, a, it's not a glory in which Moses was only able to have a glimpse that was fading, the book of 2 Corinthians says. It was a glory that you and I can see that will only grow and will never end. 
The Father knows that on the cross of Christ, all His character, all His love, all His holiness, all His justice, all of that will be revealed. There is no greater place that God reveals who He is than on the cross of Christ. And so when the Father sends the Son to die on the cross for the sins of you and me, the Father is sending the Son to reveal His perfect love and His perfect holiness and His perfect justice. The Father is sending the Son to show that He is the only true God. The Father is sending the Son to reveal that there is no other way to the Father but through Him. The Father is sending the Son to reveal that He is the bread of life and the water of life. That He is the resurrection and the life itself. When Christ dies on the cross, the character and the attributes and the personhood and the love of God shines clearer than anywhere else in all history. So when Jesus says, would you show your glory as I die for the sins of the people? Would you show your glory? He's not just asking that if he wants God to bring something good out of something terrible. He's saying this terrible thing is a good thing. This terrible thing is the good thing, the glorious thing. Would you shine all of who you are on the cross? And this, this glory, this showing the people whom the Father has given to him glory brings eternal life. Jesus says this is eternal life that they know you. It's, it's by seeing this Christ on the cross that you and I truly know who God is and that you and I truly can have eternal life. Why is that? Well, the book of Exodus that, that you remember what we read from a minute ago, would not be complete if Moses had not gotten a glimpse of the glory of God. The book of Exodus would not be complete if Moses had not gotten a glimpse of the glory of God until he recognized who this God was who had brought Israel out of Egypt and through the Red Sea and to Mount Sinai and who had not crushed them the minute they broke the covenant. He did not understand that Exodus was not yet over. And so for you and I, there can be no salvation until we know this God. Until we know this Father who will go to hell and back to purchase a people for his son. You and I cannot know who God is until we see this God on the cross. There is no knowledge of God that you, can, you and I can have that does not find its way and shine through the cross. The, 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 shining, the cross is where God makes himself manifest. You see, in John 10, we already saw this. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. Jesus is saying there is if they would know that he is the good shepherd, then they must know him as the father knows him. If you and I are to truly know Jesus, we must know him as the father knows him. And there can be no knowledge of the son until we see him on the cross. And in the same way, if to have eternal life is to know the father, And we cannot know the Father until we see his love for sinners and his wrath towards sin poured out and meted out and glorified in one terrible instant in the cross. See, it's on the cross that we begin to realize the depths of these words that we spoke at the beginning of the service. 
the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children, children to the third and the fourth generation. You and I do not know the meaning of those words until we see the, the wrath of God towards sinners on the Son. And you and I do not know the love that is in those words until we see the skies pregnant with the love of the Father. And it's only before the cross that we can truly say with Moses, if I have now found favor in your sight, O Lord, please go in the midst of us. For I am a stiff-necked person and pardon my iniquity and my sin and take me for your inheritance. You see, it wasn't until Moses saw the glory of God that the exodus was truly complete. And it's not until you and I see the glory of the Father and the glory of the Son and the cross that our salvation will ever be anything near complete. I love this song that we just sang a minute ago. Here is love. Here is love vast as the ocean, loving kindness as the flood, when the prince of life, our ransom, shed for us his precious blood. Who his love will not remember, who can cease to sing his praise, he can never be forgotten throughout heaven's eternal days. On the mount of crucifixion, fountains open deep and wide. Through the floodgates of God's mercy flowed a vast and gracious tide. Grace and love like mighty rivers poured incessant from above. Heaven's peace and perfect justice kissed a guilty world in love. Let me all thy love accepting love thee ever all, thy, all my days. Let me seek thy kingdom only and my life be to thy praise. Thou alone shalt be my glory. Nothing in the world I see. Thou hast cleansed and sanctified me. Thou thyself hast set me free. Until you and I can say, Thou alone shalt be my glory. And we're talking to the Son of God who is slain on the cross for sinners like you and I. We cannot say that with any integrity. But when we see the Son of God crushed for the sins of the world, when we see the Son of Man lifted up on the tree, when we see the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, a God who chooses to have mercy on those whom he has mercy and compassion on those whom he has compassion, and when we see he gave me to the Father, the Father gave me to the Son, he gave me to that I would be a member of his kingdom. Then you and I can truly know the father as the son knows him and know the son as the father knows him. And if this is salvation to know this God, if it's salvation to know this glory, to see, get a glimpse of this sight, then there is nothing greater that the son could pray for you than that you would see that glory. If to see this glory, the glory of the Father and the Son expressed on the cross, we see the, the love of God magnified and the wrath of God clarified on the cross. If that is salvation, 
then there is no greater prayer that the Son could make for us than that that glory would be clear and that we would see it. What does the Son pray for you? The Son prays for you that the Father would glorify the Son. And that is the greatest prayer that he could make for you. And that is the greatest prayer we could make for anybody. Is that somebody would see the glory. And so I want to give you six questions to close our time together. Six questions. Six questions to help us apply this passage. Six questions to help us apply this rich, deep prayer that Jesus makes. And the first one is this. Do you see this glory? Have you seen this glory? A person who's a, a Christian is somebody who has had a sight of this glory. Who knows what it is with Moses to tremble in the cleft of the rock, but who's invited to come out and take a look. Do you see this glory? Maybe you say, I, I, I've never seen that. That's never what I thought it means to be a Christian. That's never what I thought that it means to, to be saved, to see him. I, I've, I've never thought about that that way. I've never seen that. I've always just thought Christianity is just a list of things that you do, a list of boxes to check off. I never thought about it as something that you see the glory of the Father in the glory of the Son. I would, I would invite you, if you've never seen this glory, I'd love to talk with you more about that, what that looks like. I'd invite you to spend some time in scriptures to, to explore this and see how, how Christ approaches his own death. I'd also invite you, if you've never seen this glory, to pray and just say to the Father, would you show me your glory? Would you show me this? Would you show me your love and your justice that I could respond in awe? and worship. Do you see this glory? Number two, have you bowed the knee? Have you bowed the knee? You remember that, that says in verse two, since you've given him authority over all flesh, and Jesus' promise when he sends out the church, behold, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And when you see him in the book of Revelation and he ascends and sits on the throne of God with the Father, Jesus Christ is nothing if he's not a king. Have you bowed the knee to that king? In other words, have you asked him not only to be your savior, but also to be your Lord? Have you not only seen the splendor and the glory of his mercy, but also the splendor and the glory of his holiness? Have you bowed the knee? Have you trusted in him not only to to save you from your sins, which he rejoices in doing, but have you trusted in him that his rule and his reign is good? Have you bowed the knee? Say number three, have you been humbled? Have you been humbled? Uh, Perhaps you don't catch the irony of this, but... um, It's humbling for me that the greatest prayer request the son could ever make for me is concerning an event that happened long before I was ever born. If you ever needed an illustration of why you are not the center of the universe 
read this prayer. Here's Jesus' prayer for you. The best thing I can pray for you is that, Father, you would glorify me. Have you been humbled? Can you say, as we've been walking through the, the Gospel of John together over the last year, he must increase and I must decrease? Have you been humbled? This prayer ought to lead all of us to a deep humility as we recognize that we are not the architect of our own salvation or our own reality. We've been welcomed into it graciously, but we're also not the center of it. Have you been humbled? I'd also ask this question to those of you particularly who've been walking with the Lord for a long time. Are you still looking at the glory? Are you still looking at the glory? We, we never get over this sight of gazing at the glory of the Son crucified for us. The, the beauty and the majesty and the grandeur and the terror and the awe of that ought never to be far from our imaginations. In fact, it's actually the book of 2 Corinthians says, by beholding that glory that we're transformed from one degree of glory to the next. So if you and I are to be like him, if we're to share his, his glory and see his glory and look like him and be holy as he is holy, it requires that we keep our eyes on the glory. And I, I know it's hard because I know sometimes we're walking and our eyes are up ahead and we want to take our eyes down and look at the th- ground in front of us. And, and the minute we do that, the minute we catch, the, we, we turn our eyes away from the glory is the minute that we're be, we stop being transformed from one degree of glory to the next. The minute that we lose our way through all the byways and, and, and through all the trails and through all, through all the various ins and outs. Maybe you're here today and maybe you feel like spiritually you've been lost. Like you know that you're a Christian, but you just feel like you've gotten so far off track and you've, you've left the main highway and you're traveling on all those dirt roads in the backwoods and, you, and there's, there's supposed to be a road here, but there's not. Have you taken your eyes off the glory? Have you turned your gaze away from Christ? Is the cross still looming in your imagination? Oh, Christians, we must never take our eyes away from this glory. I'd say number five, I'd ask you this. Is this what your prayers look like? Is this how you and I pray? Certainly when we pray, there, there's, there's many things which we should pray for. We ought to pray for the physical needs of one another. We've done that here this morning. We ought to pray for those who are in a difficult spot. We, we ought to pray for, for, for many things for one another. But we also ought to pray for this for one another. That we would see the glory that our eyes would never be turned away from it. That we would never let our gaze fade the glory of the Father and the Son on the cross of Christ. Do your prayers look like this? And finally, does this glory, does this sight of the glory give you light in a dark place? Does this glory give you light in a dark place? When you and I are, are in that slough of despond, when we are in a place where we, we can't see the sun penetrating through the, the trees, when we, 
when we're walking along and we, we don't have any sense of whether it's day or night and it's just gray and dull and numb, is our first instinct to look to this glory, to turn our eyes to the cross, to let the good shepherd lead us through the valley of the shadow of death. Is our instinct when we're in seasons of suffering and difficulty and lament, is our instinct to turn to this glory? Or is our instinct to try to fight our way through the fog? Oh, Christians, this glory, this sight of the glory is sometimes the only thing that will keep you and hold you even when everything else beneath you is giving way even when everything, the ground underneath you is cracking and is going to swallow you whole, this sight of the glory is the thing that will guide you home. Oh, let us never take our eyes off this truth, off this beauty, off of this glory. Father in heaven, we thank you that you are a good and glorious God. We thank you that you have sent your Son to die on the cross for our sins and to reveal us, reveal to us your love and perfect justice, to reveal to us your mercy and your kindness, your steadfastness and your holiness. Father, would we never take our eyes off of this glory? Would we never turn our gaze away from this sight And Father, even though we might get there storm-battered and sea-tossed with masts broken and taking on water, would this glory lead us home? It's in his name that we pray. Amen. We come to this time in our service where we together take of the Lord's Supper. It's one of the the interesting things about the Lord's Supper that um, there's all these kind of rivers and types and all these things that flow into it from the Old Testament. One of my favorites is in the book of Exodus. How after making the covenant with God, give, uh, the, and God gives them the Ten Commandments, things that they can follow and they can keep. Um, the elders of Israel are called up and to eat a meal with God. And the text almost just kind of runs past it. It doesn't really go into too much detail about it. And the text uh, just kind of tells us they go up there to eat a meal with God. And perhaps the tragedy of that is that they were supposed to be a kingdom of priests. That originally, the way that God had intended it to be, the way that it had been originally intended, was that all of Israel would go and eat a meal with God. But they could not because they were afraid. It was not for no reason that they were afraid. After all, the mountain shook. After all, the mountain, God had made threats that if they would put a foot on the mountain inappropriately, that they would be struck dead. But originally, the intention had been that all Israel would draw near to God in faith and trust that he would pardon their sins. Christians, today you and I get to draw near to the mountain. Today you and I are welcome to draw near to glory. We, we probably are not as terrified as the Israelites were. And I don't know that that is always a good thing. This mountain that we are drawing near to by faith has fences, just like in the Old Testament. But we ask that um, those who are, who are baptized believers, who've made a profession of faith and put their faith in Jesus, grabbed hold of him, 
that those would be the ones who come near to the glory, who take this meal. We've asked that those who've made a public commitment to be part of that kingdom of priests, to, to covenant with the body like we've just done here, whether that's this body or another body, would, would, would come near to the table. But we also can draw near in full assurance that this is a good and merciful and forgiving and just God. For all those who've been covered by his blood and who've joined themselves to his people, he says, come. And so the way that we do that in a minute is I'm going to pray and then the elders are going to come up. They're going to distribute the bread. We'll distribute the bread and we'll take the bread together and then they'll do the same with the cup. Um, and I, if I could just invite you in just a minute, I'm going to pray. And as, as I'm praying, I'm going to um, spend just a little bit of time just giving you some space to confess your sins before the Lord. Maybe if there's something on your heart that you bring before this that Maybe there's some bitterness or something that you need to bring for him and confess to him. Maybe there's something on your heart. Maybe you think, I just was not honest with this person and I need to confess that to the Lord. Can I just encourage you to take that opportunity to do that so that when we draw near to this table, to this bread and to this cup, uh, that you would be able to draw near with a pure heart and a clean heart and that you would receive the assurance that he is a God who forgives. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are a good and glorious God. We thank you that you are a holy God and you want your people to be holy. And as Tim prayed a couple moments ago so poignantly, we have fallen short. Father, maybe we're here today and maybe we confess that there's something that has turned our gaze away from your son. There's another trinket or idol that has distracted us. Father, maybe we're here today and we confess that we have not loved our neighbor as we should. Father, maybe we're here today and we confess that, that we've gotten upset with those who are the nearest and the dearest to us. Father, maybe we're here today and we confess that we've been plagued by laziness and idleness at work. Father, for this and for so many more, we come before you and we ask that you would pardon our iniquities and take us for your inheritance. Father, at this time, I'll, I'll, I'll be quiet and allow people to make a silent confession to you. Father, we come before you as trusting that you are a God who keeps his word. That your word, that you forgive those who, that you are faithful to forgive those who confess their sins to you will not return void. Father, I pray as we come before this, this cup and this loaf that you would give us the assurance of that, that this meal would be taken, yes, in reverence and awe, but also in joy. In joy because you are our salvation. So it's in the name of your Son that we pray and that we draw near to you now. Amen.